So we have a lot of ways we use the word hope. Um, and most of them are not really in the context of Jesus. Uh, we say hope, and you could apply that to anything in your life. You know, we use that word all the time. But, you know, to be honest, we're not that far off. The word, according to Merriam-Webster, says it's to cherish a desire with anticipation, to want something to happen or to be true. So you have this, this longing for something to come to pass, right? Like we have a Patriots jersey here. I don't know the Patriots record right now, but you're probably hoping that they win today. I don't want to know the record. Is it that bad? And so, you know, we place our, our hope in all sorts of things that are changing and shifting. But this morning, I want to talk about what happens when we place our hope in Jesus. Something that never changes, that never ceases, that will never leave you empty or dry or dissatisfied. See, the problem is that God doesn't change, we do. And we're fickle human beings. And we find the next thing that catches our eye or our interest and we immediately jump to that thing and sometimes we almost forget that God is completely accessible. And actually, this morning we're going to be, you can turn there right now, in 2 Kings. And it is interesting to study the Old Testament because the Holy Spirit had not been given to God's people yet. And so the dynamic of relationship with God was almost something that was slightly foreign and terrifying because God Almighty, only certain of you know, the people could go and see him. That high priest only had access to the Holy of Holies. There was all these dynamics. Sacrifices were required. The Holy Spirit had not been given yet. And so that's one gift that right off the bat, we have to realize how blessed we are today because God could have chosen not to give the Holy Spirit and I would be in a lot more trouble than I normally am. Would you agree? Because he is our helper and our guide. And so as we look at this study today, and we're going to see King Hezekiah, though he did not yet have the Holy Spirit, Hezekiah was a good, godly man. And throughout the history of Judah, there was a lot of bad kings. How many of you guys have studied at least a little bit of this history, and you understand kind of what I'm referring to? So, you know, the king of Judah had a lot of kings, and a lot of them were terrible. They were not men of God. They, they didn't seek to please God in the things that they did. But Hezekiah took the throne at 25 years old. That's pretty young. That's my age, uh, close. And, and I can't imagine being over a kingdom at 25. And the next king, Josiah, would come in and he'd reign at eight years old. And that is incredible. Can you imagine an eight-year-old like... You know, like, say, a criminal gets caught and they get brought before the king and, you know, they're kind of shaking in their boots, like, I have to go see King Josiah. And then they walk in there and he's like, what'd you do? <laughs> Eight-year-old king. But that has nothing to do with what we're going to talk about this morning because we're talking about King Hezekiah. I remember one story of hope. Uh, when I was younger, baseball was a large part of my life. I mean, baseball was probably... a too big of a part of my life. I, I loved baseball. I idolized professional players. And I had a dream that I wanted to be a pro baseball player. And I actually chased that dream until I was about 17 years old. Um, and so baseball was, was a big part of our family. We're Dodgers fans, obviously. And, um, you know, I've yet to see the Dodgers win a World Series in my life. But uh, this year was the first time I got to see them in the World Series. So 
you know, I had a lot of hope in baseball. And I remember uh, one time in particular, I was playing for the uh, major division Dodgers. That's 11, 12-year-olds for a little league in Corona. And my dad was the coach, and we had a guy named Alan as one of our coaches. And we were in the championship game against the Angels. Wouldn't you love to see that in the real World Series? And um, I remember we were up by two runs. And in Little League, you only play six innings. So we're in the, the, the top of the, no, we're in the bottom of the sixth inning. So the other team's got their last at bats. And this is their last chance to come back and win the game. And I was pitching. I pitched a lot when I was a kid. And uh, we had been doing well. We were up by two runs. There was two outs. And we had a pretty solid team. And there was a guy on second base. And uh, a kid hit a, like, routine ground ball, right? And our third baseman, his name was Shane, too, and we were friends, and he was a solid player, right? He just routine ground ball, fielded the ball, and threw sidearm, and the ball just sailed over the first baseman's head. And everybody, you know, who was rooting for us was like, no, 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 no. Like, this should be out number three, game over, like, championship in the bag. And instead, the ball gets thrown away, and so the runner advances to third. The guys, now we have first and third, and two outs, and the pressure's on. And all my hope as 12-year-old Shane is in winning this game. If we don't win this game, my hope is crushed. My hope is lost. Because for me at that time, that was what I had. And so the game was on the line. And we actually ended up winning the game in like a freak mistake from the other team. I threw a pitch to the next batter. And I don't remember if it was a striker ball. But I got the, the ball back. I started walking back to the mound And the kid on third base, if this is third base, is standing off of third base talking to his coach. He's not on third base. So I toss the ball over to Shane. Shane catches it and tags the guy, and the Blues like, that's out number three, game over. So we won. I I can't say that that was the most impressive way to win, but uh, because we caught like an 11-year-old boy just being distracted. But we won the game. And, you know, my hope that day was to win, and we won. But sometimes life throws a curveball at us, doesn't it? And we have hopes and things and desires and anticipation for stuff, and it doesn't always come to pass. Today, as we read through this, we're going to bounce around a little bit in chapter 19 because it's pretty lengthy. But King Hezekiah knew where to place his hope. And to give you guys a little bit of backdrop before we start reading this scripture, we know King Hezekiah is ruling. We've established that. Hezekiah is a good king, but Assyria has been doing some damage to the surrounding regions. And at this time in history, the Assyrian army has actually been coming into different regions and just utterly destroying those regions. And these Assyrian men are known for, and there's... uh, over 185,000, we don't know the exact number of this army, but we know there's at least 185,000 men. So there's maybe 300 of us in this room this morning. Can you imagine 185,000 men who were known for coming in and terrorizing the children and torturing them, raping and brutalizing the women and skinning people alive at times? That was the army that had encamped outside of the gates of Jerusalem, the capital of Judah. And Hezekiah is 25 years old. Israel has already fallen at this point. And Hezekiah is looking at his situation, and by all human perspective, 
Is there any hope? If you remove God from that situation, is there any hope? No. These people are toast. There's no fighting it. In fact, earlier in chapter 18, the messenger from the Assyrian king comes out and says, give it up. You guys have your opportunity right now. Surrender now. Don't listen to Hezekiah. He says God's going to protect you guys. He's lying. And so the Assyrian king actually gives what would be a pretty tempting offer for you. Can you imagine just being a citizen of Judah and you're hearing this pronouncement? Would you, would you surrender at that point? The king was offering peace and saying, hey, you'll be able to have your own land and you can drink from your own wells and cisterns and we'll leave you guys alone. Just come out and surrender and give up now. And so the messengers, they come back to Hezekiah and they tell him of the news. And it says in verse 1 of 19 that Hezekiah tears his clothes and he goes into almost a state of mourning. Because looking at his situation, the odds are stacked against him. But as we read this story, it's probably one of the most incredible stories I've ever read in Scripture. So let's dive in, shall we? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this morning. We thank you that our hope this morning is in things greater than a baseball game or even other people. That our circumstances can shift and change and though we might be tossed by waves at times, God, you remain faithful and this morning, as we study an amazing story of how you come through for your people, God, may we just further place our hope in you this morning. Or maybe if we've never placed our hope in Jesus, we would do that and take that step this morning. God, we pray that you would speak through your word this morning only the way you can in your name. Amen. Okay, so let's jump. We're going to jump to verse 5, okay? 19.5 says, when the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, so Isaiah is the prophet at this time who the Lord is speaking through. Isaiah, and, and he says, Say to your master, thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard with which the servants of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. Now, that's a pretty great promise, right? Like right off the bat, God's like, don't worry. I'm going to take care of it. Everything's going to be fine. But let's apply that to our own life. We have a book full of promises where God essentially says that, right? It's going to be okay. I'm going to take care of it. The victory is already yours. But does that sometimes make your situation less intimidating? No, sometimes I think we need to be real with ourselves this morning. God never said, never, ever be afraid. Well, he said that, but guess what? He also said that it's okay to be afraid because sometimes we want to pretend that we're fine, right? We walk in here, and I think that some of us, even this morning, we struggle with this. We walk through the doors of church, and we put on our Christian mask. But underneath... And in our hearts, there's turmoil and there's, there's all these problems with our family and drama at work, you name it. And we walk into church and how many of you have done it? You're in a fight with your spouse or one of the kids, you're about to kill the kid on the way to church. You're like, if you don't shut up, I'm going to, you know, and then you walk in church, you're like, hi, Susie, how are you? We're blessed, you know, <laughs> come on, God knows your heart. 
You don't feel very blessed this morning. And I know that like we have good intentions sometimes when we say that kind of stuff. But this is a place that's meant to be a refuge. This is a place that is supposed to be like a family. And when you come into church, God says, just be real before me. I already know. And Hezekiah does just that. And I, lo- I love this. He goes before the Lord, and, and we're going to see he's going to spread this, this news before the Lord and just basically say, Lord, we need your help. But we doubt God, don't we? So often, it says in Mark 9.24, there's an account where Jesus is walking with his disciples and a crowd gathers, and there's a demon-possessed uh, boy. And this father, you know, Jesus... I love how Jesus is so composed in some of the craziest situations. Jesus, I could kind of picture it as I was reading through that account and Jesus just walks up and he's like, so what's going on? You know, and the father's like, you know, he's been doing this since birth. Like, and when the spirit, you know, takes over him, he'll throw himself into the fire, into the water to harm him. And, and Jesus just says, bring the boy to me. And, and there's this account of, you know, Jesus exercising this demon and and basically commanding that demon never to come back to that boy again or disturb their family. But Jesus says, before he performs the miracle, oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I put up with you? And the father says to Jesus, Lord, I believe, but help my, right, help my unbelief. And don't you feel like that? I feel like that all the time. God, I believe you. I believe that you're going to come through in this situation. But there's a part of me that doesn't. And I think that that's a real thing that we struggle with. I think that the disciples who walked and breathed the same air as Jesus struggled with doubt. In fact, we know they did. Because when that rooster crowed, right? And the disciples themselves who... who They lived with Jesus. They struggled with doubt because as long as you live in your sinful flesh, you're going to struggle. It's going to be a battle. But there's hope this morning because God constantly proves himself faithful. And Jesus didn't see, you know, that guy was transparent with Jesus and said, I believe, but help my unbelief. And did Jesus say, oh, you don't completely believe? All right, good luck. No, he, he understood the dilemma because he himself was living it, because hope took on flesh and understood the temptations that man was facing, the struggles he was facing. And so Jesus stayed faithful even when the man admitted there was a part of him that didn't believe. And that's our God. He's faithful. Verse 8 of 19. Some of these names are interesting, so you're going to have to bear with me. It says, Then Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria fighting against Libna, for he heard that the king had left Lashish. And now the king heard concerning Terhaka, king of Cush. Behold, he sent, he has set out to fight against you. So he sent messengers again to Hezekiah, saying, Thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Now this is the Assyrian king through a messenger speaking to King Hezekiah. And he says, Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem uh, will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the other lands, devoting them to destruction. 
And you, shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them? The nations that my fathers destroyed? Gozen and Haran and Rezeph and the people of Eden who were in Telazar? Where are the kings of Hamath and the kings of Arpid? The kings of the city of Seraphim? The kings of Hina or the king of Iva? Have you guys ever been in the middle of a situation where you're struggling with doubt and then there's that person who just becomes the thorn in your side? Maybe it's an unbelieving family member and every time you face a difficulty, they're right there to just remind you, why do you put all your hope in God anyways? Remember when Job is suffering and his wife says, why don't you just curse God and die? Sometimes people are the worst when you're hurting. They can be a comfort, but sometimes people say stupid things. Have you ever experienced that? Yeah, people say a lot of stupid things. And we need to be careful what we listen to and how much weight we give what people say. Even this morning, don't believe anything I say. Study the word for yourself and make sure I'm not off. And if I'm off, please let me know because I want to know. But we need to know that God is faithful and people sometimes are not. And so the king of Assyria, he challenges Hezekiah, but I want to point something out. He's not really challenging Hezekiah so much as he's challenging God. Dangerous ground. And God's promises are going to come true, and this king will get what's coming to him. But in the moment, King Hezekiah has to be like, seriously? Come on, man. I'm already struggling here. And this guy has all these choice words for him. So Assyria continues to mock Hezekiah, and this isn't anything new. They were doing this in chapter 18 as well. And the challenge becomes, hey, you guys are placing your hope in your God. What about the other gods of the other nations that we brutally wiped out? Where are those gods? Right? And it's a valid question from the Assyrians, because so far they've had nothing but victory over the so-called gods. Sometimes it is much easier to place our hope in tangible things. Money, financial security, possessions, other people that we love. Sometimes we're so quick to place our hope in certain situations in those things or people. But those things are temporary and they're also not 100% faithful like our God. Your money may not always be there. Let me tell you. Money can be hard to come by. And there's a lot of you in this room who have children and you're trying to provide for your children and it seems like the struggle is real and you keep on fighting this battle. I get it. I don't have kids yet, but man, I've been warned. So many people are like, so when are you guys gonna have kids? And then I'm, you know, I'll be like, oh, we're just, you know, we're waiting. We're just waiting until we're a little more stable. And they're like, oh, you'll see. You know, it's like this doomsday, like, oh, you'll see, life will change forever. <laughs> like, oh, we really want to have kids now. Thank you. No hope. No. Children are great. Especially when they're just like your little cousins and you send them home with other people. You know, in situations like this, without God, there is little hope. William Lane Craig, who is a Christian apologist, and he has a book called On Guard, Defending Your Faith with Reason and Precision. I would encourage you to read it. It's one of the most 
informative and encouraging books I've ever read because of how detailed it gets. And it can be at times a little confusing and you have to read things twice. But um, he says this in his book. And I just want you to listen to this. In a world without God, who's to say whose values are right or whose are wrong? There can be no objective right and wrong, only our culturally and personally relative subjective judgments. Think of what this means. It means it's impossible to condemn war, oppression, or crime as evil. Nor can you praise generosity, self-sacrifice, and love as good things. To kill someone or to love someone is morally equivalent. For in a universe without God, good and evil do not exist. There is only the bare, valueless fact of existence. And there is no one to say, I am right and you are wrong. If you remove God from your equation this morning, if you are trying to fight a battle in your life and you have removed the Lord from that battle, you will continue to lose. Because you can't do it on your own. And our pride in our flesh really thinks we can. And we can't. And some of us learn quicker than others. Some of us lose a few battles and we're like, Okay, not doing that again. And then there's others of us where we continue to try, especially as men. It's like the classic example. You're lost, but you're not asking for directions because you know what's going on. And your wife's sitting in the car like, we're lost. Ask somebody. And you're like, even at the grocery store, my wife will be like, can you just ask somebody? Like, where? And I'm like, no, I, I know where it is. It's in aisle 10. And she's like, that's cosmetics. We need noodles. And I'm like, oh. It's over here, I swear. It's right here. Or I could just ask the like tons of employees that are like all around me, excuse me, uh, where's pasta? Right? But we do that. We're stubborn and we want to try to make our own way. But I love what Craig says in that quote. Without God, there's only this bare, valueless fact of existence. We kind of just are. But there's no purpose, there's no reason, and there's no hope. Hope is lost without the Lord. Verse 14. So Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And notice what he does. What is his first action? He went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you are God alone. Of all kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste to the nations and their lands. He's acknowledging that there is a danger. And they've cast their gods into the fire. But notice what he says. For they were not gods, but the works of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord our God, save us, please, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are God alone. A wise prayer from Hezekiah. He sees his circumstance. He takes it before God. And his heart is what? Obviously, he has his own safety in mind. But what does he land on in uh, verse 19? 
What does he say in 19? He says so that the kingdoms of earth may know that you are God. Maybe the reason you're losing your battle this morning, and this is speculation and it's just food for thought, but are you really trying to win the battle so you can glorify God? Or are you trying to win the battle so you can impress your friends or your coworkers or your family? Because sometimes we have the wrong motive. And obviously Hezekiah, as the king, he's thinking about the safety of his people. But he says, Lord, let us win so that the other nations, the other kingdoms would know that you are God. Amen? Amen. When you have a battle in your life, that's a pretty healthy, wise prayer. Lord, help me overcome this so that my friends and my family and those who do not believe around me would know you're God. How many stories have you heard of people in the hospital bed who are on the verge of dying and a miracle happens? And what happens because of that miracle? Not only is that life saved to continue the work of our Lord, but who gets the glory? Because doctors who have PhDs in medical science stand there over this body and scratch their head because what happened doesn't make sense naturally. Because God wants that glory. And he rightfully deserves it. So Hezekiah doesn't pretend that his enemy isn't scary or that he's not afraid. And we don't have to do that either. We don't have to pretend like everything's great. Sometimes hope is, is low and you need to be refueled. When the Assyrian forces threatened Jerusalem, Hezekiah showed his faith by turning immediately to God. Who do you turn to first when tragedy strikes? Because sometimes as believers, God is our last resort. I don't know why we do that, Sometimes we're kind of dumb. We have the God of the universe accessible. And we face trials and we're like, hold on, God. I'm praying. I'm trying to think here. Okay, I'm trying to figure this out. And God's like, I, I, hey, I want to help you. And you're like, oh, God, hold on. Hold on. I'm, I'm trying to figure this out. I got a plan here, okay? Obviously, in the past, my plans have all worked out great. So I don't know why you're trying to intercede right now. I've got it. Right? We do that. You guys are a tough crowd, man. Why do we do that, though? God has proved himself faithful literally throughout all of history. And we, we sometimes turn to him as our last resort, and he still comes through. Turn to Psalm 46. Psalm 46. This is one of my favorite psalms. God is our refuge and strength, is what verse 1 says. A very present help in trouble. Verse 2. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, and though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, and though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in her midst, and she shall not be moved. And God will help her when morning dawns, when the nations rage and the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, and the earth melts. 
The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress, Selah. Come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolation to the earth. And he makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and he shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in all the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Shane and Shane, really great group, great names. Um, they're, they're worship artists. They've been around for a really long time, and they have a song called Psalm 46, Lord of hosts. Listen to it in the car on the way home. They basically just sing the, the psalm, and it is so awesome. And, you know, it doesn't specifically say in Scripture, but you can turn back to 2 Kings. But most scholars and biblical historians actually think that the backdrop for Psalm 46 could very well be what's going on right now in 2 Kings 19. That the Lord of hosts is with us. That God literally wants to fight the battle for us. And God, his power is about to be further put on display. We're going to jump ahead in chapter 19. We're going to go to verse 32. Verse 32 of chapter 19 says, Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria. So between verses uh, 21 and 32, or wherever we kind of, we jumped ahead right there, basically God just spends like 10 or 11 verses reminding Hezekiah of who he is and all that he's done. And then he says, therefore, thus, with all these things considered, with my great power in consideration, therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same way he shall return. And he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord. For if I defend this city to save it, I do it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant, David. And listen to this, church. And that night, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 men in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose in the morning, behold, they were all dead bodies. It doesn't say that a whole multitude of angels or a whole group of them came down. It says the angel of the Lord on his own came down and he made a joke of 185,000 men. That is the God that we still serve today. When you worship in church, when you come in here and we sing that we're never going to stop singing higher and higher, louder and louder, you're worshiping the God who is capable of doing something like that. He comes down, and most scholars would say, this is the Messiah, this is Jesus, comes down and makes an appearance and says, hey, you Assyrians think you guys are hot stuff. Let me show you something. Done. The angel of the Lord wipes them out in a, I don't know if it took three seconds or he just kind of like toyed around with it and took all night. Just one by one. I don't know. But 185,000 of them were taken out. 
Can you imagine being King Hezekiah? I would imagine he probably spent a large part of his night, if not the whole night, on his knees praying. And can you imagine maybe the messengers running up to the tower where Hezekiah is and saying, Hezekiah, Hezekiah, hold on. You're not going to believe this. You got to come outside. And they look over the walls of Jerusalem and the camp is like, I don't know, maybe it's just like smoldering, you know, flames at that point, or I don't know what the Lord used to wipe them out. But can you imagine the, the, the relief in that situation being King Hezekiah? Just like, no way. Dude, I was just praying for this. Have you ever had one of those moments? You're like, I literally was just praying for that. That's amazing. And God came through. I wish that every one of our battles was always like that. That we could just pray and the next morning wake up and everything's fixed. But that's just not how God always works. Though it would be great. And, you know, you could ask him to do that. And he might. But sometimes the struggle is well worth it. Because the lessons that are learned along the way are invaluable. Can anybody attest to that this morning? Look, I'm not teaching. It's, it's no coincidence that I was given the topic of hope because I'm not teaching this this morning from some sort of elevated platform, even though that literally is what's happening right now. <laughs> because my wife and I personally have been going through probably one of the hardest seasons of our lives individually and together. And we've been married now for, uh, I think, over six months. And um, yeah, I know. Some of you are like, I've been married 60 years. And I'm like, <laughs> sorry, I'm not older. But man, we have been going through it, man. And um, I've told you guys before leading worship, I believe in transparency. I'm not going to pretend everything's fine. I'm not going to do it. If there's things going on in my life and you ask me how I'm doing, I might just tell you. And isn't that sad? Our culture does that all the time. We do that at the store. Hey, how are you doing? And we walk away and the person's like, I'm... All right. <laughs> but we've been going through it. We've had a lot of struggles and it just seems like those arrows are coming from left and right. And sometimes it's like that surfing analogy. How many of you have tried to surf before? Tried being the key word, so more of you might be able to raise your hand. <laughs> Surfing's hard. I like boogie boarding because I just have to kind of lay down and the wave <laughs> does all the work. But when you're surfing, the board is heavier, it's bigger, it's kind of like clunky and heavy and... I, I don't know, like you're trying to paddle and the ocean's kind of strong and stuff and you're like paddling and like my traps are like on fire and I'm like, oh my gosh, I need to go back to the gym. And you finally get out there and you're like, all right, I made it out here. I've now caught my breath. I'm gonna catch this wave. And then you're like, bam, right in face into the ground of the ocean. And you're like, oh, this is the worst thing ever. Surfing's really hard. And you know what's so hard about it is that when you're trying, most of your time, if you're, terrible like me is you just spend all your time trying to paddle back because you finally get out there you wipe out and then you spend 20 minutes going and there's like 
There's, the worst is when there's like seasoned guys out there and they're like gliding by like, hey, how's it going? <laughs> and you're like, I'm fine. Can you pull me, please? Because the ocean is strong and the waves, unless you catch a break, the waves kind of just keep coming. So the best time to paddle out is when there's a break. But the con to that is that when you paddle out when there's a break, there's no waves to catch, so you have to wait. And sometimes we are called to paddle out when the waves are crashing. We sing it in church. Take me deeper where my feet have never wandered so that my faith may be made stronger in the presence of my Savior. You know that song you guys all love, Oceans? I love it too. Have you ever thought about what you're asking God to do in your life? You're like, hey, I'm doing pretty good right now, Lord. I'd like you to make it more challenging. You're literally asking God to do that because you understand, hopefully, this morning that that grows your faith. That blacksmith with the sword, that sword can't be shaped and molded until it's like scalding hot because the, the iron or, I don't know, I'm not, I'm not a blacksmith. The metal has to be malleable. It has to be able to be shaped you can't, I mean, have you ever hit a piece of metal before the hammer? Like, you're not really going to do anything. But when it's under that refining fire, under that heat, it becomes malleable and able to change. And sometimes God puts us through that refining fire so that we'll change. And maybe the next time from the bat, from, you know, the get-go off the bat, like King Hezekiah, we'll place our faith in him. Hezekiah knew exactly who to turn to in the midst of his turmoil. But notice this. Hezekiah understood something. God is not some sort of fire insurance for you. Where he's not some sort of 800 number that when tragedy strikes, then you get on the horn and you're like, Lord, save me. He might, but don't treat God like a fire insurance company. Do you guys have regular relations with your fire insurance company? I don't. In fact, I've never talked to them because there's never been a fire other than in the fireplace. And so I have no need for a relationship with them. It would be weird. But God is not fire insurance. In fact, this morning he says, I want to know you on a personal level. I already know everything about you, but I'd really like it if you'd get to know me. Because I know that if you know more about me, you'll be better off. And sometimes we treat God like that 1-800 number, the awful commercials. It's my money and I need it now. Have you seen that? Or the 1-800 general now. It's just like the worst commercials, like really bad graphics. And you're like, no, who made that? But it's out there, but that's not God. Thank God. Thank him that that's not him. Because if God was only the line that we picked up when we were in tragedy, I don't know if we'd ever pick up that line. Because we, we wouldn't know him. How many of you call absolute strangers when, you're, when, when, some, when something terrible happens? Like, how many of you guys have had, like, a family emergency? And, you, and, you know, can you imagine, like, you know, there's a couple and they have a family emergency and, uh, you know, the husband's like, oh, I'm going to call Bob, you know, because the kid's in the hospital and the wife's like, Bob. And he's like, yeah, you know that one guy I golfed with that one time? 
I don't know his last name. He seemed like a nice guy. We'll call him. Like, that doesn't make any sense. Bob would be on the other end of that phone call like, sorry, why are you calling me though? Like, we don't know each other. That shouldn't be how your relationship is with God. And Hezekiah understood that. He understood that God was the, 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 the person that he would place his hope in on a daily basis. When you wake up in the morning, where do you place your hope? Do you immediately roll over and start scrolling through Instagram or Facebook or is coffee like, how many guys like you get up and you're like, if I don't get coffee in 10 seconds, I'm gonna lose it, right? We, we live with Kim and April and coffee is like, like they set out their mugs in the morning. Like, you know, they, they, it's like ready to go. And then the thing has like a timer. So like sometimes I'll wake up and, and they get up so early. It'll be like 5.15. And, and, and you just hear like a little like, beep, and the coffee just starts going, right? And you're like, there it is. And then they're there every morning drinking their coffee. I like coffee, but I like coffee at like nine. You know? God wants to take your hopeless situation and make it hopeful. And that's what he does. He takes people who are hopeless and he makes them hopeful. Sometimes it is really hard to worship. I am the worship director at this church and I'm telling you, I don't always like worshiping. I'm not always in my car like, praise the Lord. Like that's not me. Like I don't, Ask my wife. Sometimes I'm like, oh, that guy cut me off. Like, that's just real life. I don't constantly sing God's praises, though I should. I get it. I know that life throws tough circumstances. There are mornings where I am up here and I'm like, God, are you hearing us? Is anybody being moved by your spirit right now? Because they look tired. And that's just reality. I get it. You guys have long weeks, but you understand this morning that you need to be here. Not because of how great living truth is, not because of the music or the, the stage or the, the, the fellowship. Those things are all great in and of themselves, but you should want to be here this morning because God is good. And he's worthy of your praise. And he is asking you this morning Place your hope, take your hopeless situation, give it to me, and let me fight that battle for you. That's the God that we serve. Can you imagine if Hezekiah had thrown on his armor and grabbed the peasants? Because at that point, like, an army in the kingdom of Judah was pretty sparse. Imagine if he had gone out there, and this has happened in Scripture, and God fights the battle in that way. But can you imagine if he had not gone to the Lord and just been like, all right, boys, strap up, and you're in that army? I'd be like, mm, I don't feel so good. And there's a lot of them, and um, I don't even have any armor because they stole it. Now, I don't know what the situation was, but like, it would be a terrible decision. But he didn't do that. He went to the Lord. Hear this. It says in James chapter 1, verse 12, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. I'll help you out, ladies. Blessed is the man or the woman who perseveres under trial. 
For when he has stood the test of time, he will receive the crown of life, which has been promised to those who love God. You know, we, we have verses that say we'll cast our crowns at his feet. And I was thinking about that last night. What does that mean? I think what it means is that when we finally get to heaven, that crown that we received for persevering, in comparison to God's glory, is going to seem so insignificant that we're going to be like, I don't even want this. I'm not even worthy of this. Lord, this is yours. And we're going to put it at his footstool. Because in comparison to his glory, man, the trials that you are enduring right now, that you will endure, because if you're not going through one right now, God's just prepping you for the season of trial. Have you ever noticed that he works like that? Because there will be a season of peace following this, the ending of this Assyrian threat against Judah. There will be a season of peace. And then guess what? Hezekiah's son is going to come in and mess it all up. Kids. But it's true. His son's going to come in. And Hezekiah, I wanted to mention something earlier. When Hezekiah took reign, he was a good king. In fact, Passover hadn't even been celebrated in a long time. Idols had been put up all over the kingdom. You know what Hezekiah's first act as king was? He went through and he destroyed all the idols and he reinstituted Passover. And the people were so stoked on it, they actually celebrated an extra week. Hezekiah understood. He got it. He, he understood from the very first day that if he went into ruling and didn't have the Lord, it would be a disaster. And his son would be the example of that, unfortunately, to follow. And Judah had other kings. And look, Hezekiah learned from other people's mistakes. And that's something I want to do. I don't want to relive your mistakes. And you should want the same, right? Like, I like when older people are like, you know what you shouldn't do in marriage? I'm like, what? I want to know, so I don't do it. Because I don't want to have to deal with it. And I know there's like the classic ones. Like, honey, does this make me look fat? Like the commercial. There's a correct answer to that, and there is a wrong answer. Honesty and transparency right there? Mm -mm. That's not the time. I know that. Honest Abe, have you guys seen the Geico commercial? And Honest Abe, his wife says, honey, does this dress make you look fat? And I think he says, a little, right? <laughs> He's Honest Abe. But I'm telling you this morning, seriously, if your hope isn't in Jesus, you're going to keep fighting battles and you're going to keep losing them. And like I said earlier, I don't think that every time it's going to go like this, where you're going to pray and you're going to wake up the next morning and everything's solved. And Hezekiah didn't always go like this. I mean, there was other problems in the kingdom. He ruled for 29 years. You can imagine there was probably some issues. But God wants to fight your battles for you this morning. It doesn't mean that it's not going to be hard. It doesn't mean there's not going to be tears or doubt or fear. But in the name of Jesus, those things don't have a hold on you anymore. Because when you accepted or called upon Jesus and said, Lord, I need you to be the Lord of my life, those things died. Those things were put in the grave. 
And the same angel of the Lord who came down and wiped out 185,000 men, that same Lord would come again some 700 odd years later, but not in the form of a mighty warrior or a mighty king. He came in the form of a gentle, humble, innocent, weak baby. There is no one who can sympathize with what you're going through this morning greater than the Lord because he has lived and faced every temptation and beyond that you and I will face in this life. When Jesus was on that cross, and I think this is something we miss sometimes in the Christmas story. When that baby came, Jesus was not ignorant of what would be. He knew full well, taking on that flesh, exactly what he was signing up for. It wasn't like a hidden clause in section 5A. Wait a minute, I have to die? He's like 29, you know, like ministry's about to begin. And he's like, I didn't know that. You didn't, dad, you did not tell me that. Like, right? No, he knew from the very moment that that baby was conceived and Jesus took on human life, he knew the cross that was ultimately going to be his. And when he was on that cross, he bore the weight just think about this, of every one of your sins plus everyone else's. That's an ugly picture. But when Jesus came, he knew what he was doing. He knew that that cross would ultimately be his to carry. Hope came. He took on flesh. He lived the life that I could not live and he died the death that I deserved to die. Where is your hope this morning, church? Is it in your money or your, your spouse or your family? Because I know you love those things. I'm sure they're great. But you're going to fail each other and they're going to fail you. But God... He doesn't fail us. I want to place my hope in Jesus this morning. And I know some of you are like, I'm a Christian this morning. I I understand what you're saying. Like, none of this is new for me. Cool. But is there a situation in your life right now that you're trying to fight the battle on your own? Because I think if we really dig and we ask ourselves this morning, am I 100% leaning into the Lord in every situation? I don't think any of us can honestly say, yeah, totally. I'm 100% relying on God. No, we all have that pride within us that wants to fight those battles. Am I the only one or anybody else in here feeling like that? Yeah. Hope came. Hope is Jesus. Amen. And so as we close, I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. That's so weird. I'm usually like in the back, like, guys, we got to go, we got to go, we got to go. And I, I just want you guys to really just take a moment And think about Psalm 46. You know, as far as I understand, that psalm would have been penned many years after this this occurrence with Hezekiah. And the psalmist would have probably been inspired by the Holy Spirit and by that story. As it was passed down through history, he would have been like, man, this is an incredible story. I'm going to write a song about it. And to think that God literally fought the battle for the kingdom of Judah. 
when all the odds are stacked against you this morning, if, and maybe some of you are doing great, but like I said, the battle will come. You know, we have these seasons of highs and lows. And I think that the season my wife and I are in right now, God's prepping us for a season of peace. And I can't wait. And I don't know when it'll come or what it'll look like, but it'll be nice to just enjoy being married because the first six months have been kind of nuts. They've been great. But we, we just are like, man, when it rains, it pours, huh? And God wants to prepare you for those seasons and he wants you to place your hope in him. Amen. Lord, we thank you so much for the fact that you are accessible, that we can place our hope in you, God, that you hear our cry, that you're not a God who's distant and uninvolved, but instead you know every longing of our heart, every desire, God, good and bad. And you desire to refine us and build us up And you want to fill your people with hope this morning. In a world full of tragedy and people who even desire, if they knew we were here this morning, might even want to hurt us or kill us or take our lives because of what we believe about Jesus. In a world full of things like that, man hasn't really changed since Hezekiah's reign over Judah. We are still evil and wicked without you. And so, Lord, I just pray this morning that if there's anybody in this room this morning and they just keep trying to fight the battle on their own and their hope seems to be just lost, that you would restore hope to them this morning, that they would know that Jesus came, hope came and changed everything in a moment. God, we worship you this morning. We give you the glory and the honor. We pray these things in your name.